Father, it is a good uh, exercise for us, of course, to look back last year, five years ago, 10 years ago, and see your hand of faithfulness in our lives. All of us have a testimony as to how you have brought us through and been faithful. But Lord, we need not look back more than a few hours ago when we woke up and uh, you caused our eyes to open, our hearts to beat, our lungs to breathe in, oxygen, uh, our hearing, all of the things, Lord, that we so often take for granted. We know that you sustain. And so we are a thankful people this morning, thankful to be here together uh, corporately now to worship you in your word. We thank you for the time of worship we've already enjoyed this morning, the songs that we have sung, the prayers that we have prayed. Lord God, now as we open your word, we pray that your spirit would speak, that I would decrease as you increase, Lord, that your word would go forth in power. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When Jesus spoke in the synagogue of Nazareth, the effect that he had on people was very dramatic. Mark 6, verse 2, those listening to him there at Nazareth burst out in amazement with a series of rapid-fire questions, notice. Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? These people, so amazed by what they had just heard Jesus speak, were very inquisitive. Notice that they asked where, what, and how questions. And I think, friends, that the Bible that God has inspired, which is full of the revelation of Jesus Christ, it really should have the same effect on us every time we open it. It should astonish us and it should make us very inquisitive. We should be asking questions even as we read the text. Well, today, as we are coming now to our next passage in our journey through Colossians, I want to invite you to be inquisitive with me. And to help us along on this path of inquisitiveness, um, I thought it might be helpful for us this morning to ask six familiar questions of our text three of which were asked in that verse in Mark. And the six questions are these. You're probably familiar with them. Who, when, where, what, why, and how. And so we're going to jump right in here with our questions. If you have a Bible and want to turn there, we're at Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. In this church, we always have the verses on screen, but there's something about opening your Bible and having it in front of you that we encourage Colossians 3, verse 5. The Apostle Paul issues a command from the Lord here. A command. He says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. In the original Greek text, this command is given in the second person plural. So that Paul is saying here, and it doesn't come across great in English, but he's saying here, you all, 
put to death. You all in the church of Jesus Christ put to death what is earthly in you. And so this answers for us, doesn't it, the who question. Who is to put to death earthly things? All of us are. The whole church. Are you part of the church of Jesus Christ today? The whole church, the plurality of us who are in Christ, the, the new humanity that Christ has created, that is who is to obey this command. And throughout this passage, Paul will stick to the second person plural, you all. So his address in this passage is to all of us together. All of us in Christ's community are commanded to put to death what is earthly in us. But notice that this first part of verse 5 also addresses the what question. What are we all to do? We are to put to death what is earthly in us. That's what. Now, the older theologians had a name for the thing that God commands us to do here in verse 5. They called it the mortification of sin. We, the people who have died in Christ and who have risen in Christ, are to mortify, to kill, to put to death the sin that remains in us. And so in the King James Version of Colossians 5, because that version appeared centuries ago, you have the word mortify here instead of put to death. Now, friends, what God is commanding his church to do here is something that is uncompromising. It is uncompromising. In the words of the great 17th century theologian John Owen, listen to this, he says, we are to extinguish and destroy all that force and vigor of corrupted nature which inclines to earthly carnal things. I'll give that to you one more time. To, to mortify what is earthly in us, Owen says, is to extinguish and destroy all that force and vigor of corrupted nature which inclines to earthly carnal things. And so there's no getting around it here. There is something so radical about this particular command. In another one of his letters, in Galatians, Galatians 5, verse 24, Paul talks in similar terms about crucifying the flesh with its passions and desires. Crucifying. That has to do, doesn't it, with bringing the corrupted nature that is within us to its execution. What we are commanded to do here is to put 
to death, to crucify the moral corruptions that are within us. And Paul then gives us an expansion on the what question now. Notice this. What precisely are we to put to death? What are we to crucify in us? Well, Paul lists several things. Sexual immorality, which certainly includes the act of sexual intercourse outside of marriage, but it also includes other kinds of illegitimate sexual activity that are outside the bounds of what God has prescribed in his word. Sexual immorality and, Paul says, impurity. Impurity is whatever is morally corrupt or what is impure in us when judged by the light of God's word. The impure also must be killed must be put to death in us. We have died with Christ, friends in Christ. We have died with Christ, yes. We are in Christ, yes. We have been raised with Christ, yes. We will be revealed with Christ. Paul has already laid all of that out in this letter. Impurity is not fitting with the new humanity that God has created. And Passion, Paul says, passion must also go to the execution chamber. And in context, this would mean shameful passion, uncontrolled passion, lust that is out of control, crucify it, do business with it, kill it. That's the word here. An evil desire, that is, any desire, we can think of it this way, any desire, an evil desire is any, any desire that is anti-Christ, that is hellish, that is godless. These two, we are to strive to kill in us. And, he says, covetousness, which is idolatry. This, too, must be put to death. Now, the word translated covetousness here has to do, listen, with an insatiable desire and a demand in us, an insatiable desire and demand in us for more and more pleasure. And I think it relates directly here to the previous four things. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, and evil desire. In fact, as Greg Beale suggests here, covetousness, this insatiable desire for more and more pleasure, it might be at the root of, or is the source of, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire. Covetousness, says Paul, is idolatry. Why idolatry? Well, because covetousness is a desiring after pleasure that is not God. Covetousness is when you are ravished with something that is other than God. To be covetous, either of possessions or of your neighbor's wife, 
your neighbor's husband, to go back to the commandments. This is really to be at worship before an alternate God. Covetousness, which is idolatry. So again, one of our six questions, what must we do? We must mortify or put to death in us sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. And as a good Bible scholar, as I'm sure all of you are, you might already have detected the answer to the where question. As we've been talking about, where does the putting to death happen? It happens, as the text says, in you all, (laughs) right? In you. It happens inwardly. It happens in all of the selves of the church of Jesus Christ who have died with Christ and who have been raised with Christ and who will appear with Christ and who are in Christ. Now I want you to notice something else here, very important in this command to put to death. Notice what Paul does not say here. He doesn't say this. Well, at some point next Friday, put to death. Nor does Paul say, well, I remember a year ago when you put to death what is earthly in you. Great job. Paul says, what does he say here, church? Put to death. In other words, there is a now quality about this. A now quality in the present moment. Put to death. There is a decisive, radical, firm action on our part that is required here now and for all of our nows. And of course, this gets at the when question, doesn't it? When do we obey this command? Now. Now and always. There there is an in-your-face sort of urgency about this for all our nows. This command to mortify what is earthly in us is essential, friends, in Jesus, is essential for all our nows. And so let's just pause here for a minute, quick review. So far the text before us has asked and answered four of our six questions. Who is being addressed here? All of us in Christ are being addressed and commanded. What are we being commanded to do? We are being commanded to kill in us what is earthly from sexual immorality through to covetousness. Where is this killing to happen? It is to happen in all the selves of the new humanity called the church. It is to happen in everyone who makes up the church. And when is it to happen? This mortifying of the flesh is to happen in all all of our nows. Well, let's move on in our text. In verse 6, Paul says, On account of these, on account of what? On account of the things just listed in verse 5. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, 
evil desire and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, what is happening? The wrath of God is coming. And of course, we have a massive part here, don't we, of our answer to the why question. Why put to death what is earthly in us? Why work hard and work painfully? It will be painful work. Why work hard and work painfully to kill in us the things that are listed in five? Because Almighty God hates these things so much that there is a day coming when his holy and righteous indignation and anger against them will be unleashed. But Christian, are you a Christian this morning? Christian, you are saved from that coming wrath. Did you know that? Why? Because Christ on the cross took God's wrath for you already. Are you in Christ? It's a question we've been asking over these weeks. If you're in Christ, then know that Christ went willingly to the cross to suffer God's wrath in your place for your sexual immorality, your impurity, your passion, your evil desire, your covetousness, which is idolatry, so that you would be set free and that you would be saved from the coming wrath. As a Christian person who has died with Christ, who has been raised with Christ, who is in Christ, who will be revealed with Christ, friend, you have been saved from, hallelujah, saved from the wrath that is coming on the unrepentant, unrighteous. Now, my Christian brother, my Christian sister, Christ paid an enormous, extravagant price, the price of his own life, yes, to forgive you, to forgive me. He became sin for us, the scripture says. He became sin for us, willingly doing what? Absorbing the wrath of God that was poured out that day on Golgotha. the bloody sweat, the agonized soul, the crown of thorns, the spikes driven through the median nerve, driven through flesh, the bleeding, the dying for you. And with his suffering and his crucifixion for you in view, why would you now dally around and sit back and grieve Father, Son, and Spirit by not taking steps to crucify 
the remaining sin in you that displeases him? Again, our question, why? Why put to death the things that are earthly in us? Because God hates those things and will one day pour out his wrath on those who unrepentantly practice them, you can be sure of that. Why put to death the things that are earthly in us? Because Christ has already paid the price for our sins, friends in Christ, on our behalf when he absorbed the wrath of God on the cross. It is therefore a great evil to go on sinning. And we might also mention the fact that the more we lay down and lazily give ourselves to sexual immorality, impurity, and the rest, the more we do that, listen, the more we drift away from God. The more we indulge these things, the more indifferent we start to feel about them. We start to get dangerously numb about it all. The more we coddle these things and cuddle these things that are earthly in us, the more hardened our hearts become. Why put to death what is earthly in us? Because our sins, we can think of it this way, our sins are like insidious plants. If we let them alone in the soil of our hearts, if we water them, they can grow into something monstrous. Jesus says so, doesn't he? Lust can grow into full-born adultery. Anger can grow into murder. Covetousness can turn into theft. Avoidance of God can turn into full-blown disdain for God. James says, doesn't he, in James 1.15, and mark this well, my friends, desire, he says, desire, when it, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, like a horrible plant, when it is fully grown, brings forth what? Death. No wonder Paul wants us to be ruthless and uncompromising. Put to death what is earthly in you. In verse 7, Paul says that for the believer who is in Christ Jesus, it used to be, Christian believer, it used to be that these vices and sins of verse 5 were really the driving force of your entire life. In these, you too, notice the language, you too once what? Walked when you were what? Living in them. The walking and living of your entire life used to be, before you were in Christ, used to be orbiting around these earthly things. But it's not that way for you now. 
since you are in Christ. You live and you walk now in a different orbit, in a different domain, yes? With a different king. Verse eight, it used to be like this, verse seven, verse eight, but now, notice blessed words. Now that Christ has come and has saved you, now that Christ has come and has commandeered your life, I know he did it with me, he commandeered my life, now that the new age has broken in, but now in Christ, now you must what? Put them all away. And Paul lists five more things that need to be laid aside, put away, crucified, killed. Now notice the first three, anger, wrath, and malice. Now I think these first three belong together. They relate to one another. So let's say there's a lady named Nancy Hopefully, I tried to pick a name that I knew wasn't in the congregation. <laughs> Let's say a lady named Nancy is angry with Penelope. See how safe I was? <laughs> Nancy feels rage toward Penelope. Nancy is experiencing intense feelings of wrath toward Penelope. Nancy is going to find it incredibly difficult to hold her feelings in. She's going to find it a very hard job to keep her, her wrath and her anger bottled up. It's likely going to spill over into malice. And the word malice, translated here in our verse into English as malice, this has to do with vicious Hasty, hurtful, destructive speech. God says to all of us here, all of this stuff, from the festering anger and the wrath to the malicious speech, all of it must be laid aside, new humanity, must be put away. It is ill-fitting for those who have died with Christ and who are risen with him. And Paul finishes the list here in verse 8, notice, with those words, slander and obscene talk from your mouth. The two of these should be taken together also. And the idea here is defaming another person, defaming another person with coarse or disgraceful language. Now you and I both know that people can get so ramped up, can't they? Ramped up in their anger toward another person. Just go online, you'll see it everywhere. They can get so ramped up in their anger toward another person that they go ahead and defame the person verbally using curses and cusses. Not so for you. Not so for you, believer in Jesus, who has died with Christ and has been raised with Christ. Your mouth is to be reserved for the purposes of what? Praising God, Praising God building up, edifying others, encouraging others, rejoicing in God, worshiping, speaking out his word. Your mouth 
Risen believer is to be employed in the business of expressing kindness and comfort. And I don't know about you, I think it is a beautiful, beautiful thing to witness in another believer the good quality of his or her speech. Isn't that a beautiful thing? Full of edification, full of God, kind, winsome, encouraging. Friends, we should never discount the power of the Spirit of God to change our speech. Verse 9, do not what? Do not lie to one another. The new humanity, the body of Christ, is to be the place where truth is spoken. He is the way, the truth, and the life. God says to his church, don't lie to one another. And then we get a further answer to our why question. Why are we not to lie to one another? What's the reason why we as believers in Jesus are to end off with the anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from our mouth? Why kill sexual immorality and impurity and passion and evil desire and covetousness? Why do all these things? We do this, God says in verse 9 and in verse 10, we do this because, notice, seeing that you have, what? Put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed, blessedly, by the Holy Spirit. Renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Now listen, friends, there are so many misconceptions floating around about the nature of the Christian person. Can a Christian person be described as a person who simply signs on intellectually with a set of ideas? No, that's actually a terrible description of a Christian. Well then, can a Christian be defined as a person who has decided to follow a certain moral code? No, that's a poor definition also, because according to Paul, in these verses, a genuine Christian believer is a person who has undergone what? A holistic change of self, yes? The believer who is in Christ is a person who has done what? Who has put off the old self with its practices and has put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Now, probably you do this too at home. Occasionally, uh, when April urges me to do this, I purge my side of the closet at home. It's not a job that I enjoy, but occasionally. So I take out the old shirts and the ties that were in style in 1992. Uh, I still have an attachment to them, but okay, they have to go. <laughs> I take out the pants that used to fit a more slender Brent, and I give them away. Well, that's the sort of imagery that we have in verses 9 
and 10. It's a clothing image. Christians are people who have shed old clothing and have put on new clothing. At the moment of our conversion to Jesus Christ, the old clothes went and the new were put on. But notice it's not an old 1978 tuxedo with the frills. It's not a 1980s pair of leggings that were put off. It rather, Paul says, it's the old what? Self with its practices. And to be more literal from the original text, it is the old man with his practices that has been put off. Now let's think through this just a little bit here. Eve ate what she was forbidden by God to eat, and Adam then ate also. And in that moment, Genesis 3-7 says this, the eyes of both were opened, and they knew, first time, that they were naked. And so what did Adam and Eve then do? Well, the verse continues, they what? Sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So Adam and Eve took measures here, didn't they, to clothe themselves immediately after falling into sin. And that clothing that they made for themselves, what they were wearing, This is what they were wearing when in shame and in fear they attempted to hide from God as God sought them in the garden. They were wearing these clothes that they made for himself. Greg Beale has put it like this. The clothing that Adam and Eve made for themselves was, quote, associated with their alienated condition and sinful shame. So if Adam and Eve were to come into a situation of being reconciled to God, they would need new clothing. Different clothing. Which is exactly what God provides. Yes, in his fantastic grace. Genesis 3.21. And the Lord God did what? How beautiful made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin. God did this and clothed them. These were now divinely made garments for Adam and for Eve, the old shame-associated garments and clothing that Adam and Eve had had on was put off and the new divinely made clothing was put on. Well, friends, when you and I are saved by the blood of the last Adam, Jesus Christ, we get a change of clothes. The old self, the old Adam, sinful, shameful, is put off, and we are clothed with God's clean, indestructible clothing. The old Adam is shed, 
the clothing of the last Adam is put on Jesus Christ, our righteousness. Listen, to be in God's holy presence, to have access to him, we need the clothing that he provides, yes? And in his amazing grace, he provides it in and by his son, the last Adam, Jesus Christ. Clothed in garments of salvation, rich with gems of heavenly grace, spouse of Christ, arrayed and waiting till she may behold his face. And so I definitely think that Paul in these verses, verses nine and 10, he's making an allusion back to Adam and Eve, back to their clothing. And I think the argument is strengthened by three words that appear here in verse 10. The words knowledge, image, and creator. Purposeful, they are all Genesis words, yes? They're all Genesis words. It, it, it was a selfish pursuit of knowledge, wasn't it, that had plummeted Adam and Eve into their trouble. They ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And just a chapter before that, in Genesis 1, they had been made in God's image. God was their creator who had created them in his image. Well, here in Colossians, with this very purposeful use of Genesis language, Paul is talking about what here? He's talking about God and his restoration of all things. He gave us the new clothing of the last Adam, Jesus Christ. He is renewing us in knowledge, not death-dealing knowledge, but the knowledge of God. He is renovating us into the image of his son, the last Adam, the true Israel, the Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ. Well, Paul rounds out the passage by saying, our last verse this morning, verse 11, here, where? Here in the last Adam, here in Jesus Christ, we were asking the where question as one of our six questions, here, in Christ, the true humanity, the church, here, there is what? Not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Friends, in the church, in Christ, there are no separations. There are no hierarchies based on skin color, based on ethnicity, based on economic condition, based on educational achievements, or anything of the sort. So that if that uncultured, uncouth barbarian believer from the far south, if he is in Christ, that's what matters. If that Scythian believer from way north of the Black Sea, Scythians who had a reputation for brutality, if he is in Christ, that's the thing. What matters is whether you are in Christ, yes? 
No matter if you are a Scottish-blooded, Caucasian, middle-aged guy like me, or if you're from Japan, or if you're, you're from the West Indies, Africa, the Philippines, wherever, it doesn't matter if you're a philosophically sophisticated Greek or a Hebrew Bible-saturated Jewish person. It doesn't matter if you make six figures a year or two figures. Hopefully you don't make two figures. <laughs> but the question is, are you in Christ? That is the height, that is the essence of your identity. Christ living in you. That's what matters in the new humanity. And oh, how our world needs this message right now. Paul says here, Christ is all and in all. Christ is all in the new humanity and Christ is in all in the new humanity. Welcome to the new humanity in our world of the dying old Adam that is so increasingly fractious, increasingly divided, hot under the collar about absolutely everything. Welcome to the new humanity, the church. Well, friends, we've journeyed through our text this morning. Time is getting away on us, but you may have noticed that we neglected to answer one of our six questions, the how question and I left this for the end. How do we obey the commands in this passage? To put to death, to put away what is earthly in us. How do we go about this radical work that is called for here of crucifying sexual immorality and evil desire, wrathful anger, slander, lying, etc.? How do we do this? Well, I wanna give you five words that relate to the how. The first word is depend. You may have noticed that throughout the sermon we've been talking a great deal about what you and I must do, yes? We are commanded to put to death what is earthly in us. We are commanded to put away our corruptions. There is no doubt at all that you and I bear responsibility, yes, to obey what God commands here. There's no getting around that. Our will, our activity, our hard work, our striving are required here. We are to take up arms against the corruptions that reside in us that Paul has listed in this passage. We are not to be passive as believers, but rather active in killing these things. The putting to death that is called for here must be done by us. However, without depending on the Holy Spirit, this work of killing, without drawing on his strength to overcome in this work of killing, our efforts, which again I stress are necessary, but they will not be effective. Without the Spirit's power, and I want you to hear this well, without the Spirit's power, what remains in us as earthly is simply going to outmatch us. 
John Flavel, a 17th century pastor, wrote this. He said, the sanctifying spirit is the only effectual principle of mortification. And without him, Flavel said, listen, no resolutions, no vows, or any other external endeavors can avail to the mortification of even one sin. Flavel said further, the spirit is the, listen, the only successful combatant against the lusts that war in our members. And so the first part of the how is to depend, to depend on the spirit even as you work to make efforts to put these things to death. Exercise faith in him when temptation comes, and it will, like a siege against you. Depend on him. The second word, the how word, the second how word this morning is the word walk. Now, to take a walk with my wife is to walk side by side with her, holding hands, communing together, talking together, enjoying one another. If you and I would have success in putting to death, laying aside as we have been commanded here in the text today, it's going to be necessary for us to be walking, communing, regularly and persistently with the Spirit. Listen to how Paul puts this in Galatians 5.16. He says this, very pertinent. Oh, I don't, sorry. That's our third word. I thought I had it on screen, but I don't. Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Did you hear that? Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So, my friend, I challenge you, what is the frequency, think of it in your own life, what is the frequency, the quality of your communing with God? Praying to him, listening to him, being with him, enjoying him. Walk. Third, how do we lay these things aside? How do we kill these things? Immerse. Immerse in what? Immerse yourself in the word of God. Expose yourself every single day without fail to the word of God. Be frequent in the word of God. Memorize the word of God. Eat this book. As Jerry Bridges has said, only through God's word are our minds remolded and our values renewed. Only through God's word are our minds remolded and our values renewed. Yes, the psalmist, he was really on to something in Psalm 119.11 when he said this, I have stored up your word in my heart, that what? that I might not sin against you. Stored up your word in my heart, that I might not sin against you. Put to death what is earthly in you. So the third word is immerse. Immerse yourself in the word of God. If you would put to death what is earthly in you, lay it aside. And then the fourth word is fear. As you commune with him in word and spirit, as you wait before him, as you consider his greatness, it's going to have the effect that you will fear him increasingly. 
you will gain a healthy reverence for him and an awe of him. And one of the very happy effects of fearing the Lord which pertains to our text this morning is described in Proverbs 16, verse six. By the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. By the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. Fear the Lord. And then the fifth and final word this morning, pertaining to the how of putting sins to death, turning away from them, is this word avoid. Now listen. Christian, you must be level-headed enough with enough horse sense to simply avoid doing certain things. To avoid going certain places and letting certain thoughts reign in your mind freely. You must avoid these things if you would put to death and turn aside from the things that Paul has listed here. Listen, in Proverbs 5, there is a description of a forbidden woman whose lips drop honey. But in the end, the writer says, she is bitter as wormwood. Now listen, the sage counsel, the very practical counsel in verse 8 of Proverbs 5 is to physically avoid the seductive woman. Verse 8 says, keep your way far from her. How practical is that? And do not go near the door of her house. Don't go near the door. Yeah. Avoid going to the street of your temptation, whatever it is. Discipline yourself, Christian believer, in the strength of the Spirit. Discipline yourself to avoid navigating to that online address or to the actual house address. Keep away. Avoid. If there is a sin that you know is besetting you, you put fences up. You build walls. You avoid the road. You turn the car around. Abandon the path. Fight against this thing and go immediately to prayer instead. And sit there praying for as long as it takes. My friends in Jesus, in our efforts to kill the corruption that remains in us, we must do it with regular and consistent dependence on the Spirit, depend, walking with the Spirit, immersing ourselves in His Word, fearing Him, and practically avoiding the things that we know to avoid with His strength at work in us. And when we do this, listen, we're going to find that something amazing begins to happen. All those corruptions listed in the passage, they will start to get weaker and weaker in us. Their hold in us will diminish as they tend toward death. John Flavel says, as holiness roots itself deeper in the soul, so the power of sin 
abates or decreases and sinks until at length it is swallowed up in victory. Now, you will never eradicate sin in your life completely, utterly. That's not going to happen until the day you are lowered into the earth. There will be times and there will be days when Psalm 65.3 will be your experience. Iniquities prevailing against you. There will be times when Romans 7.23 is your experience, when you feel captive to the law of sin. But you are called to perpetual obedience in this seek-and-destroy mission of killing your sin. Keep fighting, the Spirit being your power and Christ being your all. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, even as we listen to your word, it is so easy for us to entertain thoughts, cynical thoughts, thoughts that justify our actions and behaviors and words. Forgive us, Lord. And I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would powerfully this whole week work this word into us in our public and private moments. Help us by the power of your spirit to be obedient to what you command. Lord, you always give us the power to obey the things you command. And we are so thankful for that. So I pray for every person here in the new humanity in the church, Lord, that we would glorify you, magnify you this week by being obedient in the power of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.